Hey, Anthony, it's that time again. To go to the Winchester, have a pint, and wait for this all to blow over? Yeah, yeah, w- wait, no. No, not at all. Then what? It's time to make the podcast. Oh, 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 yeah, that thing. Once again, we have reached that time of the week. Time to dive into the movies we love and the movies we wish we could forget. Pitting them against each other to receive praise uh, or hatred. Based on a scale of our choosing. So let's jump into it. This is the Double Feature Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to a new episode of Double Feature Versus. My name is Anthony. My name is Brad. And today we got a very special one. Probably something we should have did way, way earlier when we started this podcast. But I feel like we've we've come a long way and now we're pretty much at the nice kind of like ebb and flow to talk about something like this in detail. Um, we're doing a favorite director uh, matchup or match off. Well, pretty much we're doing our favorite film, our favorite film by our favorite director. That's what that's what we're doing for the uh, for the battle today. Um, because if we had just did favorite favorite film is a whole different conversation. Yeah, favorite film is completely different. But this is our favorite film from our favorite director. Right. So um, my favorite director is Paul Thomas Anderson. Brad's is uh, Edgar Wright. So today we're gonna. I don't, I don't think you chose your number one because you want to save it for another episode, right? So yeah. Chose, I, I technically chose my number two for my director. Okay, yeah. So your number one is Scott Pilgrim. Um, so you chose what the second one was, which was Baby Driver. Um, my number one, I would like to say it, it, it strictly is The Master or strictly is Boogie Nights, but I look at them both on the same line. So we can use Boogie Nights on another episode so i'm gonna i think the master might be my favorite and the more the more i think about it the more i watch it but um basically today we got the master versus baby driver so which one do you want to start off with um you know how we do man chronologically so uh i think the master came out first right yeah the master came out first then all righty um so do you want me to do the honors or do you want you to do the honors since uh, uh since this is your favorite movie you do the honors of kicking this one off all right so my favorite pta film the master dude i'm gonna just say straight off the bat one of the reasons i love this film so much is because when you try to tell the plot of it it becomes a rorschach painting every time you watch it like one day i might say Oh, yeah, it's about this war veteran who um, comes across this cult and, um, you know, gains a friendship, gains a strange friendship with the cult leader. And then, you know, um, drama uh, occurs. Or you could say it's a film about, you know, power struggles, about who really has um, the power within this. um, I don't want to say love triangle, but power triangle. You could say it's about the effects of war and is man really an animal? The plot of this film changes every time I watch this film because it's such a it's such a shapeshifter of a movie. I can't really I look at this film like Apocalypse Now. I could tell you the basics. You know, a guy goes undercover in the jungle during the Vietnam War to execute um, a lieutenant gone rogue, a colonel gone rogue. But Apocalypse Now is just much more than that. And it just changes what the plot is every time you watch it. But um. Basically, I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give uh, the bare minimum of what this is. So, Freddie Quayle, um, in my opinion, the best role Joaquin Phoenix has ever done. Um, well, at least one of the best. Uh, he's a Navy veteran. Uh, he's a drunk. He uh, he's very he's a very feral type of guy. You know, he um, he's he's he's, he's just. I, I don't want to call him just a drunk because he's more than that. He's just a guy that's. Uh, He's a little he's a little perverse. He's just a very Philip Seymour Hoffman's character said it best. He's a person who's aberrated from from the path of morality or something like that. He um he's on the run after after the war. You know, he goes from place to place, gets caught in trouble. He comes across this cruise ship uh led by this uh charismatic uh cult leader named Lancaster Dodd. 
uh, one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's best roles, who I still miss, by the way, rest in peace. Um, he, this cult kind of represents, this cult is very much uh, representative of Scientology, but it's not called Scientology in the film. It's called The Cause. And um, when he joins this cult, he kind of, he kind of begins this strange friendship with Dodd. And it kind of comes into conflict with Dodd's um, teachings and, of course, his wife, Amy Adams, one of her best roles of all time, uh, where she really holds the power and is the master of Dodd, while Dodd is trying to be the master of Quail. And it's just like a great power dynamic throughout this film, and it's a great psychological drama. I... um, I can go on and on about this movie, but I wanna, I wanna, uh, I wanna cut it to you and tell me what you think it is. So, uh, first off, Joaquin Phoenix's role in this one was absolutely spectacular. Oh uh, yeah. It, as you said before, there's. It's hard to say this is his best role ever because every time Joaquin Phoenix it's is hard. doing something, he, he's always perfect at it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure like the best Joaquin Phoenix movie matches up perfectly with the worst Joaquin Phoenix movie in terms of his performance. Uh, it, there's... Am I not merciful? <laughs> <laughs> so there's uh, definitely that has to be just said right off the bat. There's that amazing performance. You have Amy Adams, as you said, is in here. Great performance. Uh, you have, I can't remember who it is that plays the, uh, the head of the cult. Uh, oh, what, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman. I was just blanking yeah. on the name for a minute. I know who he is, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he all does, three of them bring it. Yeah. He does amazing in this. It's then you have like the, uh, one kid from Breaking Bad shows up in here. Jesse Clemens. Uh, you have in here. Yep, uh, Rami Malik, I want to say was his name. Rami, Rami, I, I sometimes mix it up, but yeah, he's in here. Yeah, uh, so you have this kind of oddball cast in terms of like now that these people are big names because I don't think they were as big of names when they were cast in this, were they? Not back then. Uh. Yeah, so it, you basically have this weird like. Uh, a B star list of uh, people that just kind of pop in. You're just like, oh hey, that's the guy from Breaking Bad, and oh hey, mm-hmm. it's the guy from uh, Mr. Robot. You know, like so that, that was kind of nice to see, and everybody kind of falls into the roles perfectly as like the cult. And I love that the idea of the cult is remembering the past to remember right. your past life back and, beyond. I think is what they call it. Yeah. Because uh, it's just, you can see your past life and, you know, just close your eyes and think about your past. And mm. you'll be able to see your past and everything. And I love when they get called out every time because the one leader just goes crazy every single time he gets yeah. called out on it. Yeah, he, he does. That kind of adds to a little bit of um, Paul Thomas Anderson's offbeat humor, the way he... uh goes into a rage like that it kind of reminds me of uh adam sandler in another pta movie punch drunk love oh yeah How he would be like prone to rage like yeah it kind of that, that kind of adds to like pta's humor a little bit um i would make a case that the reason i think this might be the best joaquin phoenix role is because of how much he just submerges into it like he created like you know that awkward gait that quill has where he's kind of leaning over mm-hmm. like that was really all him Paul Thomas Anderson said that Joaquin Phoenix came up with that. You know, the whole thing when he he has his mouth like this and, you know, he's like grating his teeth. Like that was all Joaquin's creation. So that that would be my case for why I think it's his best role. But again, like you said, it, it, it would be it would be trying to choose, choose like Denzel's best role when there's so many great ones. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I. It's like trying to pick the best apple out of, like, a bunch. It's just, you're going to be sitting there all day looking at the small details of every single one when every single one of them is probably perfect. I think the moment when I'm watching this film and I can tell it's different from anything else I've ever seen is the the first processing session between Freddy and uh, Lancaster when... They're drinking a little potion he's put together, and um, let's be real, man. Some of these, some of these dudes' alcoholic drinks 
uh, I don't think anyone should take. Oh, yeah. He just, he just makes his paint thinner or whatever. Like, you can tell, really, Freddie is just trying to, like, get the most he can out of life. He's almost like a hedonistic kind of person. Um, but, you know, when they're drinking and Lancaster does his processing session where he has to answer all of Lancaster's questions, no matter how absurd or uh, personal, without blinking, and if he blinks, it's infringement. Like, that's one of the most subtly intense scenes I've ever seen. Oh, yeah, especially when you can see him, like, struggling not to blink. And he finally blinks, and he just freaks out, and he's just, damn it! And, well, you know this means we had to start over again, you know? And he just goes, yeah, let's do it, let's go. Uh, Because that proceeds with him saying, like, this is fun, let's, you know, let's do some more of this questioning stuff, because this was when he was trying to figure out if he would be good for the, the, uh, the cause, a.k.a. the cult. Right. And um, I just love, again, power dynamic is a key theme in this film. Like you always hear Philip Seymour um, saying to Joaquin, like, you silly animal, you're an animal, you know, like we are not animals. Like he really refers to this guy as an animal. And Freddie Quill kind of he kind of goes into that role of kind of being an animal. He's he's prone to rage and, you know, beating up on folks and stuff like that. You know, he's he's a traumatized veteran. Um, I would say that the both of them see through each other's bullshit too. I think Freddie sees through Dodd and Dodd sees through Quill. And that's kind of, that kind of adds to their complex friendship. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Cause, uh, I think one of the best scenes where you get that kind of vibe from is the, when they're arrested and they're in the two jail cells next to each other. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, yeah. So, uh, it, because Freddy's just kind of going crazy in his cell, uh, mm-hmm. just banging on the bed. Uh, he like destroys the toilet that's there, everything like that. He's you know going up against the bars, and then you have uh, the cult leader in the other cell, just kind of just patiently standing there, just waiting. You know, going, "You done yet? Are, are you going to keep going? What are you What are you doing? What are you trying to do?" And then they just right. get into this yelling match with each other of, you know, you're a fraud, everything about you is fake, and, you know, nobody likes you, the only person that likes you is me, you know, you only have me. And it's very, like, cult leader kind of things to say, too. And I love it, because it falls right into what you hear about, like, cults, where they, like, entrap you by making you think nobody else cares about you. You know, th- this right. is your family, this is your only family. Everybody else, you know, they don't want to see you succeed, but here we want to see you succeed because I care about you. I'm the only one that cares about you. Stay here. And yeah. you get to see a little bit of the dynamic of them kind of twisting with each other a little bit, but you also get to see the perfect like personality of a cult. And I, I love that scene. It, it's such a great scene, especially because it's a single camera shot. I don't think the camera moves for like a solid almost 10 minutes probably. Oh, yeah, he does a lot of long takes in this film. This was shot on, um, I think, 60 millimeter. Or some, no, I think uh, I think it was shot on 65 millimeter, and it was released in 70 millimeter. Um, I'll be honest, man. Even though I'm a cinephile, it's hard for me to tell the differences between stuff like that. Like, I know the difference between film and digital, of course, but like it, it sometimes gets hard for me to understand the millimeter sizes and all that. I can tell aspect ratios usually, mm-hmm. but I couldn't tell yeah. you millimeter sizes because uh, especially when aspect ratios change within a movie, it it, it mm-hmm. does get jarring sometimes, uh, especially yeah. when it's, you know, a, a major scene and it doesn't actually transition through a shift. It just kind of goes to the next scene and it's a different aspect ratio. That's basically the only times that I notice that kind of stuff. I agree. I agree. Um, I wanted to talk about when you say the personality of a cult and um, I love how he has, I love how when he, he, he has so much enigmatic pretentious dialogue in the beginning, like, um, you know, he keeps, t- he keeps telling Freddie, you seem so familiar to me. I got to find out where we met. And then uh, when he invites him to the, uh, to the, to the wedding of his daughter, he's like, um, Leave your worries behind. Your memories aren't invited. Like, he says all this mysterious stuff, 
But when it comes to a point where he's kind of confronted, like you said, about his work, like when he releases his second book and Laura Dern is talking with him like, hey, uh, you said we should be doing this now, but originally we were doing this. He's like, yes, yes, uh, it's changed. Well, um, I, I just want to know, well, well, why did it change? And then obviously he blows up like, what the fuck do you want? You know, yeah. like you could tell you could tell us a facade, of course. Um, but I love how with the dialogue, he does put up a good front of being this mysterious guy when he's not really mysterious. He's just forged the whole character. Yeah, and I love that that change that they make in the book is very subtle, too, because it changes from what do you remember to what can you imagine? And there you go. It's, yeah. it's somewhat similar in its kind of premise overall, but it's enough of a change to make you go, oh, yeah, this is very much like what a cult would do, is they would change their verbiage to try and get more people in. And, yeah, if anybody questions it, you're going to get yelled at because we're trying to help people here. You know, right. it's, it's what we're doing. We're helping people. So, yeah, I... There's just so many kind of, I wouldn't say subtleties, because it's really not subtle about it, uh, but so many little, like, bits that kind of go into, like, the mindset of a cult. Well, you know what, yeah, I guess that's what I would call it. Not subtle, but it's like, it's, 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 uh, it's scattered, you know, it's not throughout the whole film. You get, you get little bits of uh, the facade being um, broken down. I would say, man, the most dangerous character in this film is uh, Amy Adams' uh, Peggy Dodd, because I think the most dangerous thing about her is that she fiercely believes in her husband. Even if his facade is showing, she fiercely believes in it. And like I said, she's more in control of him than he is of the cult. But you can see it behind the scenes. You know, they always say behind every great man is a behind every strong man is a strong woman. But um, I would say this kind of flips it to a disturbing effect where she uh, she's like um, she's spearheading the whole thing. You know what I mean? And that makes it more dangerous because she actually believes this nonsense. Yeah, she uh, she's definitely probably the most dangerous overall, like even more so than Freddie, who is absolutely insane when it comes to his dedication to the cult. Yeah. And I want to uh, speak on Freddie. Like, Freddie is, like, Freddie is one of the uh, most surreal anti-heroes, like, I've ever come across in film. Like, the reason I love this movie so much is because, again, I told you it's a shapeshifter of a movie. The, the way I describe this plot changes every time I watch it. But I love how, like, you go deep into this man's psyche of his, like, um, like perverse fantasies. Like, I love that one scene where they're, they're singing a song and, He's just envisioning every woman naked while our daughter's just dancing around. And you're like, like, dude, this is sick. But then you kind of realize that this guy's mind is really messed up. He doesn't need mm-hmm. to be here. He needs to be in a place where somebody can help him. Then you right. realize the kind of stuff he drinks that may be impacting his... Um, his mental stability. His, his mental stability, right. And then you, then you start to think about mental abuse from traumatized war veterans and PTSD and all that. And then you say, okay... This film is kind of saying something larger with this. This isn't being shocking to be shocking. And even in the end, when he goes back to his baser impulses, you know, he takes the girl home drunk, tries to give her a processing session. And of course, it's all nonsense because they're drunk and, you know, whatever. And then you get back to that scene of him curling up next to that nude uh, sculpture they made on the beach of the woman. And, you know, you kind of ask yourself, is this guy just an animal? Or is he a man that has animal instincts and needs to be helped? I, th- I, obviously, th- I obviously think it's the latter, but, mm. you know, I don't even know if he was an animal to begin with, but he, I know that he was a tortured, traumatized man to begin with. And this was like, this cult thing was like the worst thing that could happen to him. Yeah, he definitely was already kind of, it. I guess he needed help before he joined the army. And then getting out of the army did not help him anymore. It just kind of made everything for him made worse. It worse. And yeah. it, the, joining the cult basically said that everything about you is okay. You know, you don't need help. You know, we're here for you. And that was like the worst possible outcome that could have come from after he left the war. So, because I do like when you kind of see him before the cult hits when he's doing uh photography for what looks like 
a fancy a kind of store like yeah a department store uh so you get to like he's doing like actual photography stuff like what you would see in the back of like a sears or something like that when that was mm-hmm. a thing and you get to actually see him interact with people and you can see how he interacts with children, uh, women, and then men. And I love when he's going with the, I think it's in like an army veteran or it's another veteran or it's some kind of lieutenant or somebody. Cause he had like badges on his shirt or mm-hmm. he was just dressed like that. I can't tell. Uh, but he, he starts like messing with him with the lighting by putting the light like right up to his face and everything. And, you know, I'm just trying to get the right lighting. I'm just trying to get the right light. And then he starts like choking him out with his tie and everything and like anger that. Anger starts to come back, you know, that repressed, you know, trauma starts to come back. And yeah, he's not, I don't know, man. I lean, I, my, my answer changes as I watch the film every time. I think Freddie Loki might be an animal. He's an animal that kind of needs to be trained. The cult didn't train him right. You know, the cult was the worst place to kind of train him and make him a stable animal. Well, yeah, because you have the scenes like, uh, what was it? The the wall and the window where he's just yeah. going back and forth and describing, you know, I could leave, but I'm not going to. You know, I it's it's almost like a heartbreaking scene. Because he's just constantly going back and forth between this wall and a window and describing what he's feeling and everything like that. And you can tell he's not right in the head at all. Mm-hmm. Just from that scene alone, you can decipher that this man is like a broken man that needs help. And obviously, he's not getting help where he's at. And then out of nowhere, like, okay, it is complete. You have passed. I'm like, yeah. he could have said that at any time. No, nothing's changed. He just decided to say it at that point. Like, you have passed. You know, um, I love the last scene between um, Lancaster and Freddie where they're meeting at this new, I guess, this new school that he has in England. Um, I feel like, I don't feel like he received the phone call in that theater. Like, there's theories that, like, when he was in that movie theater and he received that phone call, that, that was a dream. And he just ended up, th- and he just ended up just traveling there off off that dream. I feel like that could have been a dream because who receives phone calls in movie theaters? Also, how would they have tracked him? Because I know he says it uh, during the call of "How did you find me?" and everything. And his only response is, "We have our ways." Yeah, like, yeah, I really feel like that was a dream. A lot of this film feels like a dream. I, I but, can um, see that part, especially being like a dream sequence of some kind, because. It or something that was playing out in his head is like, I believe this is what would happen, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, I love when he appears there and dude, I love the framing of the shot where you think it's just Dodd in the room until finally when you see um, you see uh, Freddie kind of nod to someone off screen. Then you see that Amy Adams characters in the room, too. But she's mm-hmm. shrouded in darkness because, again, you know, she's the master, you know, controlling the master. And at some point, she says something to him that's it's probably the most true. Um, it's heartbreaking, but it's the most true. She said, you just can't take this life straight. Like, you, you just have to be drunk. You can't take this life straight. That's who you are. And that's a sad thing to hear. But, I mean, it's the truth. Freddie can't take this life straight. So it's like that's even more of a stronger reason he can't be with the cult. And I love how... It, it, <laughs> It, it's so funny when um, Lancaster says, uh, says, all right, I got to say goodbye to you now. And then Freddie says, uh, maybe we'll meet in another life or something. He says, in another life, you will be my mortal enemy and I will show you no mercy. And then he just starts singing slow boat to China to him. Yeah. Like, it's, a, it's such a weird emotional scene. And it's a weird way to end the movie, too, with that. You know, it's a nice closing to the movie, but it's still weird. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, this is one of those films, dude. Like, this is why I live for cinema, dude. This is a film that first time I saw it, I bought it on Blu-ray. And uh, when it ended, I immediately started it over because I was like, I was like, man, that was that was weird. And so I just watched it a second time right after. Like, um, yeah, I, I just feel like this is just a great film to me. Yeah, was this your first time seeing it? This was my first time seeing this one. 
So, yeah, I got the uh, first impression of it. I did, would need to go back and watch it again to get, like, second impression and stuff like that from the early onset with uh, the information that we know from later in the movie with how he acts and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I love this movie, man. Uh, totally subjective, totally biased rating, uh, five out of five. But I would you know, say I would give it a five out of five as well. This is, it's really well done. You have great acting from everybody in this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. it, really good cinematography. Uh, you, the plot, it keeps you interested the entire way through, uh, which is hard on kind of some of these dramas to keep your attention all the way through the movie. And this one does yeah. it fantastically. So and Johnny Green... Yeah, Johnny Greenwood's score, man. That that dream, oh, that yeah. dreamful score, that that's uh, really engaging too. Yeah, because you have the scenes with Freddy are very interesting because you're getting to see literally somebody that's completely out of their mind, and then you have the cult, and even seeing the people in the cult without Freddy is interesting to see how they interact, like how the family treats each other and sees each other. Uh, you know, Freddy defends the cult more than the family defends the cult in a way. Because mm -hmm. most of them are kind of just done with it. They they realize that, you know, it's a cult and everything and they could care less. But Freddy, like, wants them to care about the cult. It's a weird dynamic between, like, the family and Freddy. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is, man. Um, this is a, this is a um, film that you can write different subjects or different papers about. I feel like this film was made for a film study class, if that makes sense. Like, this film was made to be studied. Um, yeah, this is a work of art to me. Yeah. Um, all right, on to the next one. We got your choice here, uh, Baby Driver. Yes. So, Baby Driver is a film by Edgar Wright, uh, his fifth film overall that he ever did and it just oozes everything that Edgar Wright has built up in every film he's done uh, the level of detail in every scene is immaculate you can tell I think the only like downside that also works really well in this film's favor is he came up with the soundtrack that he wanted in this movie before he put like pen to paper for writing this movie so oh, yeah. It makes some scenes a little disconjointed, but at the same time, scene for scene, everything flows perfectly within each scene because you have literally the scene worked around a song and the beats of a song and the rhythm of the song and even like the lyrics in some cases. So you start off with, uh, I'm trying to remember what song it is that begins the film, but it, you have baby kind of just sitting in a car uh, waiting for this bank robbery to finish so he can get be a getaway driver because that's his role in the movie is the getaway driver for uh, basically I think they only do bank robberies if I recall correctly. I don't think they did any uh, other kind of crime. Yeah, it was bank robberies. Yeah. Yeah. I just watched it uh, last night. Okay. It was bank robberies. Do you remember what the song was that it opens on? Because I'm drawing a blank on the song name. I do not. Okay. But, yeah, it just it floats perfectly over it because you see him, like, start playing it on the iPod and then the people get out of the car and they start heading into the bay. And then it, from there, it's just a look at uh, Baby as he's in the car, which is his code name during these missions. Because every, like most crime kind of movies, everybody's working off of a code name. Uh, so that way nobody knows their true identities. The only person that knows their true identities is the mastermind behind it. And he goes by the name Doc, played by uh, Kevin Spacey. Which, mm. it, even with all the stuff with Kevin Spacey and everything, I still think his performance in this movie is absolutely amazing. Yeah, we might differ on that, but... um. I, I I can say this though. Uh this does feel like visually and the way it's edited is immaculate. Um but uh I feel like visually this this felt like Edgar Wright's championship game. Like you know when a director comes to a point where they make a magnum opus where everything they've done 
up until that point is thrown all at the wall and it it, it uh, ends up being something like kind of magnificent. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that's Baby Driver. Like I feel like this is all of Edgar Wright's wants and needs in one movie. Yeah, and, it uh, it yeah. definitely fills the Edgar Wright vibe of like editing because uh, as a, it, everything just flows perfectly scene by scene because he mm-hmm. does not change a script in the middle of a movie. Uh, as he has it written is how it's filmed and that makes it so every scene is done perfectly to what he sees in his head and yeah i think that's called oh go ahead no it go ahead no i think that's called in camera shooting yeah like when, when you shoot you're shooting the you're shooting the script chronologically instead of shooting different scenes out of order you know what i mean yeah so yeah. he's he's a big uh, advocate for that kind of you know filming. Uh, that's one of the reasons why you know he dropped off of Ant Man is because Marvel wanted to change things in his script, and he that's not his style of doing it. Uh, he right. wouldn't have come out to his kind of par of what he would have liked being put out into theaters with his name attached. Uh, he likes having full control over what he's doing. Uh, he mm-hmm. acts as writer, director, and producer of basically everything that he touches. So he knows that it's coming out exactly the way that he envisioned it in his head. Which, it it flows so great in this movie. I would say that, you know, some of the comedy... You can see that little bits of comedy are missing from this movie that were in, like, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and At World's End that were brought in by Simon Pegg. Which, yeah, uh, like the Halloween mask. Yeah. Like, uh, who was this? It's Mike Myers. No, it's not. Yes, it is. I, I want a Halloween mask. This is Halloween. No, the movie. Oh, you wanted Jason. No. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there, there are some like bits of comedy and stuff, but you can tell that, uh, you know, the writing duo of Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright is one that's, you know, untouchable when it comes to the previous movies. Ed, this one is great by all means by Edgar Wright. Uh, but you can tell that the missing bit is Simon Pegg's kind of added humor to a lot of it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, with films like this, you can sometimes, uh, with action films like this, the problem with some films like this is that you can have the issue that the main character isn't as interesting as the supporting characters. But with this, you know, I just love Ansel Elgort's uh, performance as Baby because, you know, he just seems like a very vibrant kid. You know, he moves, he grooves to the music. He drives to the music. Everything is to the music. Mm. And uh, he seems like, of course, he's a kid that's in this life of crime, uh, not by his own. Well, it is by his own design because he took some money he shouldn't have taken. But, you know, he you can tell he's a kid that you feel sorry for that even though he is trying to redeem the wrongs he's done. You know, and even after that, he still gets pulled in. And um, I got to speak about Kevin Spacey's character later because some things don't make sense. But, you know, you feel for this kid. You know, he's a you know, he's a good kid, but he's 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 a good kid in a bad world. Yeah. Yeah. He got pulled into this uh, because he ended up he liked stealing like fancy cars and racing them, basically. And he yeah. ended up stealing one from this uh, mastermind of, you know, bank robberies, Doc, uh, played by Kevin Spacey, who refuses to let it go and says that he's mm-hmm. going to pay off, you know, the car, everything that was in the car, which happened to be a lot of money. And it's questionable if that's true or not, because he drove the car into the ocean that he gets rid of the evidence whenever he stole a car and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's hard to say, you know, how much of what doc is saying is true because doc really wanted him for his skills. Cause he noticed that he was really good at, uh, you know, driving. Yeah. Um, dude, this movie flows. Well, it's a very, uh, it's a very smartly crafted action comedy. Um, the only gripe I have with it is towards its climax. So, it, it, listen, everything builds up well. You know, the like uh, the moment where shit goes left, and um, you know they're they're getting the money from who we ta- who we found out was cops, and mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, bats start shooting, and uh, you know you know Jamie Foxx is a competent villain in this film. I feel like he he did it he did his job. 
Um, but the thing where things start to make me scratch my head is like how things kind of escalate from like John Hayne, who is this guy that we actually kind of like. You know, I like John Hayne's character in this movie. He seemed like the only guy that pretty much had a kinship to Baby on the on the bad side of things. Of course, we have um, Lily James' character, who is his woman, and we have his uh, foster father, who loves him very much. But, like, John Hayne was, like, the only one that was, like, you know, he kind of understood Baby and had sympathy for him. But, like, now he's the villain because his wife got shot, but, you know, his wife was dumb by shooting at the police. But all that is fine. The only part where I'm like, all right, that makes no sense, is where Kevin Spacey goes from, like, and this guy is the true villain of the film because mm-hmm. he says, oh, if you don't do this job for me, uh, I'll kill everyone you love. And he says it so passively, and I agree with you there, that Kevin Spacey's acting is pretty great there because he just says it so passively and you believe him. But the minute Lily James runs in and he says, oh, I was in love, I'm going to help you now. I was like, that, 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 that's not his character. Like, wow, it felt like convenience of plot. And, um, you know, I'm able to forgive it because it's such a great, you know, greatly crafted movie. But Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, that the characterization towards the end of the movie is kind of kind of makes me scratch my head. Yeah, it's uh, well, even that scene has one of the best quotes of uh, the movie, in my opinion, is don't you dare quote Monsters, Inc. to me again. my nephew's favorite movie (laughs) something like that yeah it's my nephew's favorite movie and i was watching it and i noticed that there was something similar about that movie and the things you've been saying to me (laughs) right right um Um, yeah so there's little things like that but yeah i can say that his shift in personality kind of changes a little bit especially when you know they're in the garage and uh doc sacrifices himself against buddy who is John Hamm's character uh, to yeah, say it doesn't make sense. Yeah. It, it kind of, it's, it's a dramatic shift of his character that I would have liked to see a little bit more developed earlier on in the film of him. It, it, okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Cause it comes off that he really doesn't care about baby at all. Uh, That's the thing. If we had saw little glimmers of that early on in the film, I'd be like, okay, th- this is understandable. This little shift of conscience. You know, like this little shift of perspective. But it's like the whole time it's like this is business. You do what I say. If you don't do what I say, I'll kill your whole family. Like, what, where's the emotion in that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like I, I agree. Like, But it's for convenience of plot. So as a screenwriter, I get it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. But as you said, like John Hamm, uh, Buddy, and his like transition from like being one of the biggest supporters of baby getting out of this versus becoming like one of the major villains toward the end i think his transition was pretty clean yeah i, I think it's fine you know because he loves his woman and that's built up well yeah you know like when, when they're talking with jamie fox and he's like oh he's a he's a nice man he really stands by his woman and she talks about how he goes red when, when he's angered or whatever like that is built up well. That, well that's, that's even fine. the scene where uh, they talk about, uh, I don't know if you caught it, but uh, they allude to the fact that he killed Griff for his comments in the elevator. Who's Griff? Uh, the, John Bernthal's character at the very beginning of the movie. Oh, oh, he died? Oh, I thought he just went away at the beginning of the movie. Like, he was there and then he left. What did he say? Well, at the when they're in the elevator, you know, he makes a comment on... Uh, uh, to baby of you know look mommy and daddy are getting it on don't you find that hot you know because uh john ham and his wife were kind of you know ca- making out. out in the elevator and then as he's getting out he's like well boys and girls if you don't see me again it means that i'm dead and then he leaves the elevator and that's the last time you see him and then in the oh, car smart. they're talking that's about smart. uh how uh Buddy. They want to do, yeah. They they want to do um, Jamie Foxx's character, right? They want to kill him. Yeah. And John Hamm is like, you sure we should be talking about this in front of baby? And you know, okay, that makes sense. Well, oh, it's no, also the that. they say, uh, you know, should we kill him like we killed the other guy? You know, is he making you uncomfortable? Should you know we do him in the same way? Mm-hmm. Which kind of yeah, alludes cool. to the fact that they killed Griff, and that's why he's gone. <laughs> Okay, cool. Yeah, I didn't I didn't catch on to that. All right. Yeah, well, you know, two less scumbags in that universe. 
Uh, most of them are dead by the end anyway. Yeah. Uh, I think Bats is probably the most brutal in terms of like deaths in this movie, though. Yeah, yeah, he was a he was a needed villain um, because if we just had Kevin Spacey or you know douche John Barenthal, it'd be like, eh, okay. Yeah, he was a needed villain. Um, you know, uh, he he's the villain you uh, you you love to hate, and his death is um, most celebrated when it happens. Um, yeah, it I is a very said, like yes, finally kind of death, but man, is it brutal because it's literally an iron kind of uh pipe just going right through his chest through a windshield i think this film shows restraint too because if i was yeah i don't want to do that i don't want to say if i was in the director's seat because it's not my vision but i would think if if you wanted to make him a totally narc if you wanted to make him a total nihilist um no nah, i'm not gonna do that but yeah he he's he's a villain that you uh you love to hate and his death is most celebrated um, yeah, yeah, I, I say he's a necessary villain, a necessary evil in the script because it shows how dark the life can be. Yeah, but and he's also a realistic villain. He's not trying to be evil. He's trying to basically survive. It's kind of his personality of, you know, hey, I'm hungry. Let's stop at this diner real quick, you know. Right, and then uh, the moment where um, uh, he, he almost kills uh, Baby's um, love interest without even knowing she's the love interest, you know, he he's about to go and kill her and he stops him like you know um yeah he's a very yeah he's an evil person yeah he he um the character did his job yeah and you know it same with uh a buddy and darling who you know are the couple and everything i love his transition from going you know because he starts to like not like baby as much during the scene when he thinks that he's trying to run on them from the job and I don't I don't think it's about him not liking him he's about it's about him just trying to make sure everything is good I like, think he's losing his him. trust in him yeah yeah so and then they find like the video recording tapes and stuff like that and it, it just kind of I, I like that scene of uh you know baby just sitting there talking to buddy like through the window and then bats just jumps in the car and goes hey we're gonna go for a ride where are we going you know right, what, what's going we're on somewhere at 2 a.m yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah um yeah, also man, the look I on don't... doc's face i think this is like a testament to all the characters when they play the recording and just the look on all their faces as they go from like this you're a cop you're definitely a cop and then they play the song of you know is he slow uh right. it, it just the, the look drains from all their faces to go from like, are we really are we really listening to this shit yeah what <laughs> what what am i listening to i don't think you're a cop anymore but i don't understand what's going on anymore <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's that leads to like, you know, um Edgar Wright's offbeat humor. So yeah. humorous. Um yeah, overall, man, I really enjoy this movie. Uh besides that little flaw towards the end, everything just hits right, man. I know some people might have a gripe with it being too controlled, but I think that adds to the film's brilliance. Like everything is made all the gunshot the gun ballet sounds are are around the beat of the track that's playing. Yeah, it's a yeah. well-crafted movie. It, it definitely is. It, you know, there are some scenes that kind of feel a little disjointed from the rest of the movie, but at the same time, that is literally because he chose the soundtrack before he even started writing a single word on paper for, you know, the plot of this he had, movie. He had this in his mind since the 90s, right? Yeah. Like he, he had been wanting to make this since ni- 1995. Uh, yeah, he always wanted to make like a getaway driver kind of uh, movie based on music. And that was basically the premise of it. That that was it. Just a getaway driver movie based on music. So it, you tell that to several people. They're going to come up with completely different ideas, uh, which is what the basis was. And he got to actually do a music video uh, or direct a music video with uh, Noel Fielding that mm-hmm. acted as kind of like a test for Baby Driver, where it was literally a song playing as uh, Noel Fielding's is like doing the same stuff from the beginning of Baby Driver, kind of just messing around in a car, waiting Walking for. Around and, yeah. Oh, okay, messing around in the car. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I think directing wise, this is his championship game. Like he he throws everything at the wall and it sticks. Um, would you say it's his magnum opus, or it's too early to tell something like that yet? Um, it, it may be his magnum opus because I think he's like last night in Soho is gonna be more of a horror kind of drama, which I think is moving away from his comedy mm-hmm. aspects. And we'll kind of see nothing how that works. Out. Yeah, nothing wrong with branching out. You know, um, yeah. I feel like that's uh, that's the best thing a director can do is evolve and see if they can work in other genres. I mean, we saw him get a little taste of horror when he made his uh, Fox trailer for Grindhouse. You remember? Oh, Don't? yeah, the the fake one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I haven't seen the trailer for Soho yet. I'll, I'll probably watch it today, but um, I'm sure he'll do just fine. You know, the oh, guy yeah. has they, proved himself over and over again. He's a very meticulous, uh, rhythmic filmmaker. Oh, yeah. Because I can even say, like, I, I put my full faith in anything that he puts out at this point that I'll at the very least see it. You know, I might not like it at the end, but at the very least, I know that I'm going to go see it and give it a shot. And Baby Driver was one of the movies that I just had very little interest in when I first heard about it. First off, because the name is called Baby Driver. And I was like, what is this move? Okay. What, you know what? I didn't really care about that, but okay. Well, the, even the like plot synopsis, I didn't care for. It wasn't until like the first trailer that I was like, okay, I can get behind this. I can, you know, fall into this because it was literally the plot synopsis was, uh, getaway driver baby, you know, falls into a group of like bad people. It, that was like the plot synopsis before the trailer with, with came the out. Heist that's doomed to fail or something like that. Yeah, I something think I like that. The same plot. Yeah. Um. It, it just seemed yeah. very like bare bones, but at the same time, I was like, "This is the guy that gave like Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Scott Pill." I I put my faith in him. He's there's probably going to be something into this movie, and luckily, I was dead on with that. Look, when you stand behind a director, they can release a film called Dog Shit. If you go see it, you stand behind that director. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, like it, I um, I don't really care about titles. Like, plot synopsis, I'll take a look at. If it doesn't seem like it interests me, I'll wait for the trailer. I'm like, let me see the trailer. Let me see what this is talking about. Let me see if did all of this. Um, I need to see something. You know what I mean? But I'm still, if I stand by that director, I'm still going to at least check it out. Right. You know, like um, Paul Thomas Anderson. I wasn't the biggest. I wasn't the most intrigued by Inherent Vice. I mean, I kind of still don't like that movie, but I respect it. And, you know, I went to see it because it was a PTA film. And, um, I mean, I even bought it, but that's just to complete my collection. Like, you know, but I, I, you know what I mean? I still stood by it. You know what I'm saying? You stand by it, even if it's not the best. Like, I kind of feel that way about, uh, what is it, Uh, At World's End? Uh, when it comes to, like suggesting movies for people to watch by Edgar Wright, I like because that movie. a lot of people like that movie, but it's a hard one to get people to sit down through the entire thing because it is it does have a weird flow to it. I think it's because it's more of a mature story. It's about men in their middle age, and you know, just trying to look back on their old life, like again, like the prologue scene with Simon Pegg, where he's in the AA meeting and yeah. he's um. You know, I I love Ed World's End. I feel like that might be my favorite uh, Edgar Wright film. You know, okay. I love, I like Hot Fuzz and Scott and um and Shaun of the Dead, but I feel like Ed World's End. Like I saw that in college. I don't know that one kind of like resonated with me. Yeah, that one it's really good, but I find it to be probably one of the harder ones to like recommend to people when it comes to all of his movies. Oh yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. If, if people want to get into Paul Thomas Anderson, I'm going to recommend like Boogie Nights or Magnolia. I'm not going to recommend The Master. Right. Because it, I know The Master is not for everyone. You kind of got to build up to watching a movie like that. Yeah. When it comes to like the overall movie that I would suggest like people to first get into Edgar Wright, it's Shaun of the Dead. Because it's it, it. I think the comedy in that one is perfect to encapsulate his kind of like comedy style and you get some really good directing in that as well. Uh, I would argue choosing this. I mean, this is a very accessible movie. There were people who didn't even like know Edgar Wright's work that liked this film when it came out. That's true. 
That that might just be something in my head then that I think Shaun of the Dead is the perfect starting point because that's where I started. Yeah, like um, I think like yeah, like Scott Pilgrim is like very niche. I guess that's a very. I'll niche admit type that that film. one's very niche in its community and everything. Niche. Great movie, I absolutely love it, but very niche in terms of you know people that'll enjoy that one. Yeah, like you, you gotta. Um, yeah, so like, yeah, Baby Driver or Shaun of Dead, because Shaun of the Dead is so British. There are people who are kind of like repellent towards British comedy that they might not even give it a chance, which is unfair, but. Mm. I'd say more. I say more hot fuzz than Shaun of the Dead with me, because hot fuzz kind of keeps you engaged with the action. As, okay. As, as, as satirical as it is, you know what I mean. I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, difference of opinion. Um, maybe you know. It depends on who you're talking to. Yeah, it's it's definitely all opinion because. It, Edgar Wright is one of those directors where it's hard to pick a wrong movie <laughs> to watch mm-hmm. of his. Uh, we'll see with Last Night in Soho, but I already have high hopes for that one just because it's a psychological horror movie by Edgar Wright, the guy that literally makes sure every scene f- you know, is perfectly done. It, that is going to be either one of the most terrifying movies of all time in terms of like psychological horror or one of those ones that's going to keep you up at night <laughs> after you've seen it. Hey, look, man. Uh, I'll um, I'll say this. Uh, you know, when you talk about titles and if they throw you off, you know what I mean. Paul Thomas Anderson, his newest film coming out um, later this year. You know, it's called Soggy Bottom. But you know, I'm not gonna judge it off that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I'm 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 gonna see what the synopsis is like and then watch the trailer. And I I know I'm gonna be in. I'm gonna be all in. Oh, and they got a uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son in it too. It's going to have Bradley Cooper, Benny Safdie, which is one of the Safdie brothers who made, you know, Uncut Gems and Good Time. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm all in with this one. Does that one have a release date or? Uh, later this year, around November, December. Okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, what you been watching lately, man? Uh for now, I actually finished up the anime Dr. Stone that uh, up okay. to season two. And there was something else that I was watching, but I'm drawing a blank on what it was. Uh, oh, The Mighty Boosh. Uh, I decided to just kind of throw that on in the background. Uh, take it back to the, to the childhood, huh? Yeah, take it back to the childhood. I, I, I love that show so much. Uh, I'm in season two right now of doing a rewatch of that. Which one is that one again? I think I, I think I'm thinking of something different. Uh, I'm thinking the, of that uh that girl with the pigtails who sits on the big red couch. Oh no, that's um I don't even know which one that is. The big comfy couch or something like that. All right, no, never mind. Never yeah, mind. no, the Mighty Boosh is a British comedy uh, with Noel Fielding's. Um, the gorilla, uh, and a shaman, I think he is. Yeah. He's a shaman. And, uh, like the first season takes place with them all working in a zoo. Uh, the second season is them kind of like just living together in a flat. And the third season, uh, I'm trying to remember what happens in the third season. I haven't seen any episodes from it recently. But, yeah, each season takes place in a completely different setting, but it's the same characters in it. And they don't reference any of the past seasons. It's like each season is contained in itself. Mm -hmm. But that's a... It's like a great British comedy. It used to be on Adult Swim back in the day, like one of the late-night Adult Swim shows. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, um... Okay, yeah, I've heard of Demarty Bush. Um, yeah, recently, man, um, I've been taking the um, the ambitious task of watching all of Akira Kurosawa's films. You you know him, okay. right? That that's a yeah. pretty big catalog, isn't it? Yeah, he made Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood, Kajimusha, I think it's called, and um, the one that everyone references, uh, 
Rashomon, uh, Rashomon, um, very influential um, Asian director. Uh, you know, it's funny, dude. When you go through um, director's filmographies, you start from early on. Like, his first film was was pretty good to me. I, I liked it. But, like, there's some duds, man, that I couldn't get through, either because they were propaganda films or um, it was just boring. But um, I've I've um I've gotten into the good films now. Like I've I've just got done watching Drunken Angel, which is a which is a very good movie. I remember watching that in college. But um, yeah, I'm getting through Kurosawa right now. I uh, I like him, man. I do. Um, I watched. Guess what? I watched for the first time. Which one? No, no, no. Not even one of his films. Like just, just like, just like a regular film. Uh... Speed. With Keanu oh, Reeves, Speed. First time you've seen that movie? It was the first time my wife and I saw that movie. We just watched it uh, yesterday. It's a good movie, man. I was going to say, what did you think of that one? Cause... Even for the 90s, that was a pretty solid action movie, dude. It's definitely... It's an early Keanu Reeves kind of movie. And... Yeah. Yeah, I gotta say, I watched that one after I started getting on, like, a Keanu Reeves kick from, uh, I think it was John Wick 2 that finally got me on a Keanu Reeves kick, and I saw it after that. Did you watch Devil's Advocate with uh, around that time, too? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, Devil's Advocate is cool, but, uh, Speed is good, man. Speed is a solid action movie, dude. I mean, it, it has its 90s moments, of course, but uh, I love the I love the back and forth banter between him and Sandra Bullock. Like Sandra Bullock is great in that movie. Like she's oh, yeah. the perfect she's the perfect foil to his character. Like her her, her witty remarks, and uh, this scene kind of has bad acting, but it's so funny when she um when she when she hits that uh when she when she runs over that baby carriage and she starts freaking out because she thinks it's a baby. Her acting is fine, but you know. Keanu looks back and says, "Cans, it's just cans. It's just, it's just beer cans." <laughs> like Keanu, you know, like you could tell he was like the pretty boy back then. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he was still working on his acting a little bit, but you know, he was, he was, he was the pretty face back then. Yeah, th- there was definitely this was like the, you know, you don't need to be a great actor to be in Bill and Ted kind of thing. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I still haven't watched those movies, man. I probably should. Oh, we should do a comparison of the first to the second. Or not the second, the third? It's three of them, ain't it? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I was trying to remember. There is a second one that came out shortly after the first one. And then there's the new one. Uh, but, yeah. We definitely need to do that at some point. Maybe do all three. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, so I watched Speed. Um, I enjoyed it. I was going to watch Black Widow, but I decided to put it off. I'm going to check it out. I'm sure you've seen it by now, right? I have not, actually. It's really not that high on my priority list, Uh, especially since theaters are kind of like sold out. And I I want to see it in like a, yeah, around here, they're for like the Dolby Vision. Uh, All the seats are like taken in each theater. It's probably about like eighty percent full, which okay. means that the only seats left are like the front row, like the very ends of like each row, and you know, so all it the good seats are taken. It ain't it ain't that deep to me. Um, like it's a film that I want to see. Um, I know you keep telling me you think it's going to be the next Winter Soldier. Uh, I hope it is. I really want it to be, like, the Winter Soldier in terms of, like, the spy kind of setting. I think I might watch that from home, man. I think I might watch that from home. Uh, So I want to see Black Widow. But, you know, oh, what I'm really looking forward to, the Green Knight. Oh, we already talked about that. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. um, Other than that, man, that's pretty much what's on my radar and what I've seen so far. Uh, for me, the big one that's coming up is in August, the Suicide Squad. Yeah, that looks like a good one, too. That's, that has your guy, yeah, James Gunn, making it. That's probably my most look forward to uh, coming up movie. Because uh, 
once that comes out, it's becomes a race to October for Last Night in Soho in terms of, you know, movies I'm very hopeful for. Let me guess. You're going to go see it and um, you're not going to um, you're not going to watch it on HBO Max. You're going to go see it in theaters. Uh, the Suicide Squad? Yeah. Oh, 100 percent. I'm going to see that one in a theater on the big screen. Uh, like Thank I have you. a theater room, which is great for a lot of movies. Like that's how I watched uh, Kong versus Godzilla and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it, the Suicide Squad is one that I'll go see in a theater. Like even Black Widow is one that I think would be better in a theater. I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna end up breaking down and just watching it at home eventually anyway. Just yeah, going through and seeing like, nope, no good tickets today. No good tickets today. No good tickets today. You know what? I'm just going to watch it at home. <laughs> did I tell you I saw Fast 9? Did we talk about that on the pre- on another episode? We did. You saw that one. Uh, oh, okay. You saw that one with uh, Zola. <laughs> yeah. Family is all I have to say. Just family. Yeah. I've seen the memes for that one. I... I 100% have no interest in that movie just because of all the memes making fun of him saying family. It is what it is, man. It's a Fast and Furious film. Um, but uh, if we're going to do a double feature head-to-head, again, this was a bi- another biased episode. But um, I, I just have to say, subjectively and maybe objectively, I, I got Master winning over Baby Driver. Um... Yeah, I, I got to put Baby Driver ahead. It's just, I, I love this movie. <laughs> okay. The Master okay. is really good. It's it's a close call on it, but yeah, Baby Driver just pulls ahead. I, um, uh, as far as ratings go, I give Baby like a 4 to 4.5. I give it a 4 to 4.5. I, I yeah, give I it a 5. I, I think it's it's up there. Uh, there's a little bit of like hangups with it, but they're easy to look past overall when it comes to the movie. Okay. Um, I guess that pretty much settles it. All right, y'all. We will see you on the next episode.